Morning again. We were going through the Gospel of Mark. We've kind of done it in two halves. We were did the first half of the book last spring. We've been going through the second half, and we're closing in on the end. It's really just a few weeks left in this series. At the point at which we're at in the Gospel, Jesus has been arrested, and uh, two weeks ago when we were when we were here. We saw the, the first of the two trials that Jesus goes through. This, is bef- this was before the religious authorities. Uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, and uh, the Sanhedrin, the council. Where we pick up this morning is, uh, is sort of meanwhile, uh, downstairs, <laughs> this is what's going on. So let's pick up in Mark 14, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the slave girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Well, as we seek to rest in Christ, to be reoriented around His kingdom and reinvigorated to go out into the world, let's pray that the Word would speak to us. Father, we need You to speak because our lives are confusing. What we have done, what others have done to us, the way that the world is, and who you are, are often a jumble in our minds. Would you clarify it by your word, through your spirit, in the name of your Son, we ask this, amen. Have you ever had the experience as you're driving down the road when there's somebody in front of you that keeps drifting into your lane? or the other lane, uh, or somebody who's an erratic breaker, you just kind of never quite know what they're up to or what's going on. Uh, there is a word for this in my house, coined by somebody who will remain nameless, untrustworthy. That is the label that person gets. It spills over into other areas of life every once in a while, but uh, it always comes up with driving. That person is untrustworthy. So I'm either going to hang back or I'm going to get around them as quick as I possibly can because I don't know what they're going to do. They're untrustworthy. Well, the truth of the matter, I'm reminded, by the way, that uh, it's not merely a label. They actually are untrustworthy. I was reminded at this point. Um, 
The problem, of course, with that label is not that it's untrue. It's just how many people we forget to give the label to. Um, Most of us have been untrustworthy drivers at some point, probably. Uh, Been distracted by other things going on. Been upset about other things that had nothing to do with (laughs) what's going on on the road. Um, We're often untrustworthy. The truth is we're untrustworthy in a lot of areas of our lives. And this is one of the great questions about our own existence is what do we do about the fact that we have failed uh, other people, that we have dropped the ball in our relationships? What do we do about the fact that others have done that to us? It's one of the great problems of life. (laughs) And uh, of course, it's true about Peter. It's crystal clear about Peter. This is really a story about someone who is untrustworthy, but also about one who is trustworthy. Let's think about Peter, the untrustworthy one here, the one who's faithless. Peter's been lurking uh, around the palace of the high priest. So in Jerusalem, uh, the palace of the high priest is huge. It was a massive Uh, Building complex, really, (laughs) is a better way to frame it as a complex of buildings. Uh, So it was was a huge uh, thing. And there's this courtyard, as any wealthy house had, but this would have been especially big. And we're told back in verse 54 that we looked at uh, two weeks ago that Peter had followed the the crowd from the Garden of Gethsemane into the courtyard. So Peter's hanging around down there. There's probably lots of people coming and going. So uh, again, this is the palace of the high priest. So there are probably um, merchants delivering things for the day as you get into the early morning hours. There are people showing up. They've gathered the Sanhedrin there. So there are all these wealthy uh, individuals who probably had their servants with them. So there's probably a decent amount of people hanging around, not to mention those who were servants of the high priest themselves, who because all this stuff is going on, they're going to be up and about doing things or even just waiting around to be called upon to do different things. So there's probably a large crowd and there's obviously a fire there. It's the middle of the night for people to warm themselves and Peter's been hanging around, uh, lurking probably, I imagine, on the edges of the the group trying not to, to call too much attention to himself. But of course, they figure out that he doesn't really belong there eventually. We don't know why. They, of course, recognize that he's a Galilean. Uh, It might be that the servant girl that initially identifies him has seen him at some point throughout the last week. Jesus has certainly attracted attention. So it's certainly possible she's she's noticed him. It could be something about his dress that identifies him as a Galilean. We do know from some ancient sources that if you lived in Galilee, you had a distinctive accent. So maybe it's something about when he speaks to people that stands out. Uh, There's also an interesting little fact here in verse 67. Uh, The servant girl says, you also were with him. Uh, In the Gospel of John, we're told that that Peter had actually entered with somebody who knew one of the servants in in the house of Caiaphas. So, and it might even be John himself, it's a little unclear, but uh, 
So maybe he was already identified with somebody else who had come. Whatever the case is, they recognize that Peter probably belongs with Jesus. And of course, Jesus is on trial. It's a dangerous association, right? So before we give Peter too much of a hard time, we need to recognize that Jesus, everybody knows, is probably on his way towards execution. It might be a dangerous thing to be associated with him. But of course, in the background here are Peter's own words. I don't know if you remember back from earlier in this chapter, uh, in, verse, in verse 29, uh, Jesus had just reminded the, the disciples what he had already been saying all along, you're all going to desert me. And Peter says, look, are these other guys? They might, but not me. In verse 30, Jesus tells him that he will. He predicts it. It's quoted again here in verse 72 that we just read, that Peter is going to deny him three times. And, of course, he emphatically insists, I will die rather than deny you. Which makes this all the more powerful in verse 71, the third time when Peter, it says, invokes a curse on himself and he swears. Now, look, we use the word cursing and swearing in modern American parlance to to mean really just using any bad word. (laughs) Uh, This means something specific here. To swear is to call on God as a witness. To curse is to call on God to hold you or someone else to account. Peter is really coming undone here. He's calling on God himself to judge him. And the rooster crows the second time. And all in a moment, Peter realizes what he's done. Now, there's a helpful contrast to Peter. I've mentioned this along the way a little bit as well uh, in Judas. Actually, all the Gospels, in, in slightly different ways, bring Judas and Peter into parallel with each other. And this is, it's, a, it's a fruitful thing to, to recognize what's going on because both of them betray Jesus. They both do. They both betray Jesus. And, you know, Judas, just to remind you, uh, we don't know that much about Judas, really. He doesn't feature prominently until this last week. But as Judas comes into view, and in Mark, it's at the beginning of this chapter, uh, uh, chapter 14, that, that he comes into view, we've figured out that he has already become disenchanted with Jesus, disappointed with what Jesus wants or is doing. And whether that started to happen at the beginning of this week or what, whether that was already going on before they even got to Jerusalem, it's, it's unclear. But the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back is when Mary anoints Jesus with this Expensive perfume. This is uh, verses three through nine. If you're of this chapter, if you're trying to figure out where that is, but uh, that was the last straw. Really, it was finally like, what is Jesus doing? And Judas goes out from there to betray Jesus to the religious leaders for thirty pieces of silver. 
And of course, in verse, verses 44 and 45, he brings them to the garden to find Jesus, betrays him with a kiss. And it's helpful then to, to think about G- Judas and Peter and how they're similar. You see, both men, and this is so important, both men started to realize that what they wanted, what each one of them wanted, and what Jesus wanted were different things. Now, Judas seems to be more self-aware about this. It dawns on him slowly. He's realizing along the way until, again, this fateful moment uh, back at the beginning of the chapter when he finally decides he's going to do something about it. But he, he realizes along the way that Jesus' and Jesus desires and his desires are going in different directions. Peter not known for being the most self-aware in the Gospels. I hope you've seen that along the way with Peter showing up in a lot of stories. Peter, not being self-aware, seems to think, despite the fact he's constantly being corrected, that what he wants and what Jesus wants are really the same thing. And even when he cuts off the guard's ear... In the pre, in, you know, earlier in this chapter, and Jesus says, put that sword away, this isn't what I'm about, Peter still doesn't get it. He's following along, he still thinks what Jesus is doing and what I'm doing are, you know, we're, we're in step with one another. What I want, what Jesus wants, the same thing. And it is not until this moment when Jesus has given himself up to judgment And Peter is too scared to even be identified with him that Peter finally realizes that he wants something different than what Jesus wants. That their desires diverge. Now, of course, Judas has more time to act. Having slowly realized this, and of course, Peter, by the time he realizes this, it's all too late for him to do anything with that realization, but it's the same realization. And what's more is they both regret it. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, Actually, Matthew brings this, brings these two things in close proximity because Matthew tells us just after this moment that early that next morning, Judas goes back to the religious leaders and tries to give them their money back. And they won't take it. And he goes out and hangs himself. Peter is obviously coming apart. He, is, he runs away weeping. Now, we won't see Peter for a little while. Uh, I don't know where he goes from here. I don't know where he spent this Friday. Uh, that's, that's dawning here. But they both regret what they've done. But that's where the difference comes in. Because for Judas, regret leads to despair and to death. For Peter, regret leads to a brokenness and repentance. And so the reason that I think that all the gospel writers bring them into parallel is to show us the possibilities for all of us who find ourselves faithless, untrustworthy, 
This is the two roads. Now, it's worth thinking about what do we do when we regret what we've done? What do you do? One option is you ignore it. Try to pretend it didn't happen. Uh, We don't actually see anybody doing that necessarily here, but I mean, think about this. This wider circle of Jesus' followers, not only the 12, but a group that was kind of following Jesus into Jerusalem. Where do they all go? I don't know. But we certainly do this in our lives, don't we? We choose to sort of turn our attention elsewhere. Boy, that was unpleasant. I'm going to carry on with what I'm doing over here. And we have the funny propensity as humans to rewrite our own history along the way. Uh, Where we start to convince ourselves, well, what I did, it wasn't that bad. Or I know I was deeply involved, maybe I wasn't that deeply involved in that situation as, as I thought I was. That was somebody else's thing. Actually, I've known, some people can actually completely write themselves out of the of what happened. As a pastor, I've, I've actually seen situations where people are confronted with the very words they wrote and they don't recognize them. Because to deal with our regret, sometimes we just think it's easier to ignore it and pretend it never happened. And we can actually trick ourselves into thinking that it never happened. Now, what I've done, I don't know. I don't know about that. I'm not sure I was actually really that involved. Which, of course, is uh, at the very least very frustrating if you're dealing with somebody who does that. But at the worst, it's self-destructive. Because the conscience is not so easily quieted. And the degree to which we know what we've done, even if we refuse to recognize it to others. It goes underground and it metastasizes. It rots. Of course, the other option we could ignore, but we could also recognize it. But what do we do when we recognize that we've done something bad? I mean, this is, Judas does not, I mean, to Judas's credit, we don't give Judas credit for much, but to his credit, right, he, he actually knows what he has done is wrong. He recognizes that he's done something evil. But the way that he goes about dealing with it is what we call shame, right? It's not just merely the guilt of recognizing he'd done something wrong. It is the value that he sees in himself because of it, or the lack of value, the worthlessness that he feels for it. I mean, we, we live in a, in a time over the last decade or so when suicide rates have been going up. Now, I mean, this is not a sermon about suicide. Uh, there are many dark paths, I think, that lead down that road. But that sense of worthlessness is always there. There may be other things. There may be long-term mental illness. There may be a whole host of different things at work. But you can see it in Judas, at work, right, that he sees that he has done something bad and therefore thinks of himself as worthless, shameful, and there's no way out. 
It's worth saying, of course, I mean, since I bring up suicide, I mean, if that's where you're at, like, speak to somebody, because that is never the biblical narrative about who we are. We are always valuable because we are God's creatures, and we are never without hope. Because the gospel of Jesus is always there. And we're going to talk more about that as we go, but it's worth just recognizing that. And I don't think it's a, but I don't think it's a mistake or an accident, I should say, that the suicide rates have grown as we have, as shame has made a big comeback in our lives. It is the fuel of our public life. Think, I mean, think about how much shaming language we use to talk about those who see things differently than us. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, that other side, they do use a lot of pejorative language about us. And I want to say, just take a look in the mirror and say, what, do, what does your side say? What do you say about those who think of people differently? We use a ton of shaming language. We, we think about this, we're consumed by it to the degree to which we're on social media because social media runs on shame. It is the background noise of everything you post, right? And, the, and those questions about like, am I, gonna, am I gonna say something about this? Am I gonna write something about this? And then the question of how is that gonna be received if I don't say something? Are people gonna think, oh my gosh, right? Like the whole thing is a giant shame machine, right? And I'm not saying that's anything new in human history, right? Like we've all lived with wondering about how people think about us. It's just that it's always in front of us. So are these our options? <laughs> right? Ignoring it or being destroyed by shame? I think Paul helps us see a different option. Uh, if you look at 2 Corinthians 7, there is a moment where uh, Paul is dealing with this church in Corinth that has lots of problems. And apparently... Some of the people in the church have problems with him, and there's been a bunch of different things going on. First Corinthians, if you think the current church is a mess, just read First Corinthians, and you will find out it has been this way from the beginning. But, the, uh, but he's writing in the second letter uh, to the Corinthians, he writes about how they were grieved by the letter that they had received from him, and this is what he says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And this is it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You see what Paul sets up. He sets up on the one hand, a kind of worldly grief, as he says, leads to death. I mean, I don't know that he necessarily was thinking about Judas in this moment, but you can see it for what it is, right? And then he sets up a godly grief, which is repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. This is so helpful to understand, right? Because repentance, we talk about that word a lot in the church, but sometimes I'm not sure we understand what it means because I think that 
a lot of people, and maybe even especially in the church, think of repentance in a way that is actually what Paul calls worldly grief. It is about shaming yourself. It is about groveling before God. It is another way of trying to do something for yourself to atone for what you've done, to beat yourself up enough, and that which leaves you in your regret, which leaves you in your shame, which leads to death. But what Paul says, what we see Peter live out, is a kind of godly grief, which is different, which is not just, you know, saying you're sorry. <laughs> and that's one way we try to, that's like one way we repent. No, you're sorry for backing over somebody's foot, right? We're, we're sorry for things we didn't see or understand were happening. We're sorry for an accident. Repentance is about owning responsibility, right? It is about taking responsibility for our words, our deeds, our thoughts even, and pursuing those that we've hurt. But here is the deal. It leads to salvation without regret. If you, are st- if you still can't get over being consumed by guilt over something you've done, you actually haven't repented. I'm not saying you completely forget that it ever happened. In fact, I think real repentance means recognizing what our weaknesses are, right? And start in, in taking actions in alignment with that to see that we don't continue to hurt people in the same way that we've hurt them. But instead, if we are able to learn from it and to grow, we know we're on the right path. But this is the trick, right? This is the trick. We can't do it on our own. Which leads us to the one who is trustworthy. The one who is faithful. Because there is a moment, it's earlier in this chapter, it is verses 35 and 36, where Jesus recognizes the competing desire in his own heart. You remember this? See, where Peter and Judas started to see that what they wanted was diverging from what Jesus wanted. Jesus had a similar moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where he realized that at least in terms of his human nature, right, he didn't want to die. He didn't want to suffer. You remember that prayer? If there's any other way, take this cup from me. But notice what Jesus does is instead bend his will to the will of the Father. Now, we talked about this back then when I preached this. Jesus, of course, is God. This was part of what he wanted. And notice, it's if there's any other way. The goal is still to save us. But he starts to realize that he could, he could go down a different path. There is a temptation towards another path. But what Jesus does is align himself with the will of the Father. Jesus is faithful when we are faithless. 
And it's more than that. What we've already seen in the, the first trial before the high priest is that Jesus is, he doesn't get distracted by questions by, about what he, you know, what exactly did he say and all these false accusations, but instead he does answer directly exactly the things that they want. Jesus gives them the fodder to hand them over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. He openly declares that he is the Messiah, that he is the would-be king of Israel. More than that, he openly acknowledges his divinity, which of course enrages the Sanhedrin. Right? Gives them the desire the, to hand him over. Right? If there was anybody that had reservations about what they were doing, they were ready to hand him over. All this is to note what we've been saying all along, especially in these last few chapters of Mark, is that Jesus intentionally drives into the storm. It is not merely that Jesus says, okay, but he continues to take actions to make sure that he ends up at the cross. Jesus is single-minded in getting to the cross. Jesus is single-minded in redeeming us from our sins. Little wonder, right? This is, we're told this over and over and over again in the rest of the New Testament. Paul in 1 Timothy says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In 1 John, John says, He appeared in order to take away sins. This is why Jesus came, was to deal with you and me as sinners. Full stop. That was his whole animating reason. And there are other things about the gospel, ways in which it's applied that are true and important, significant, things we do talk about. But this is true, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that was his single-minded desire. So that if you know Jesus, you do not need to fear owning your sin. This is why repentance can actually happen in our lives, because we do not fear that we will be rejected because of sin, because Jesus came to save sinners. Like you and me. We can repent because we know we will not be rejected for recognizing our sin. But rather, we have somewhere to go with our guilt. We have somewhere to go where our shame has been taken away. The reason that repentance leads to salvation without regret is not merely in owning the fact that we've sinned, but having somebody who paid the price for us. Uh, one book I've, I recommended that was printed last year a couple times is called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And you should all buy it. This is what he says, For the penitent... Jesus' heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins and foibles and insecurities and doubts and anxieties and failures. For lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. Jesus came to save sinners. This is what Peter and Judas start to realize, of course, is that they are great sinners. 
where maybe they entertained the possibility that they were not desperate in their sins. They both come to realize this, and the difference is that Peter turns back to Jesus. Repentance is often, it's often said, at least in reform circles, uh, following a book by a guy named Thomas Watson, who's a Puritan, that repentance is, is not only turning away from sin, but turning toward God. And what that means is it's not merely saying, I'm not going to do this. It's, more, it's, not, it's saying, I'm not defined ultimately by my sin. Rather, I am defined by what Jesus has done. My confidence is in him. Which is why faith is the opposite side of the coin of repentance. Faith and repentance always go together. Because a repentance without faith is what Paul calls a worldly grief. If you're repenting without faith that Jesus has done everything that you need, it will only be death. It will only be a path of shame. Driving further into the ground. But when we have faith in Jesus, we know that we can repent of everything. Anything that we've done, because it is not the end of who we are. That he didn't turn away from us, even in our sin. That he paid the price for what we have done. That is what godly grief is. That's what real repentance is, is not merely turning away as in I'm not, you know, kind of a reform decision that I'm not going to do this anymore, instead I'm going to do this. No, it's saying I'm not defined by this. Therefore, I can give it up because I'm defined by Jesus and his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. This is Dane Ortland again. Though the crowds call him the friend of sinners as an indictment, The label is one of unspeakable comfort for those who know themselves to be sinners. That Jesus is a friend of sinners is only contemptible to those who feel themselves to be outside that category. Those of us who are sinners love that Jesus is a friend to sinners. Because he will not reject us because he has taken his whole life and steered it in the direction to save sinners. And there's no better example of this than Peter himself. Talk about somebody who's learned to not be defined by their sin, but to be defined by Jesus. It's Peter. I mean, this is Peter's whole life. Peter is actually the first of the apostles to meet Jesus. The funny thing is, it's not actually recorded in any of the Gospels. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that he was the very first of the apostles to see Jesus. To meet him. I kind of wonder what that was like. I do know that in John 21, later on, when Jesus meets back up with the disciples, they've been out fishing, it's a whole thing. They're, they're having their you know, breakfast fish. Um, and Jesus turns to Peter and three times says, do you love me? And every commentator from the very beginning of the church has recognized that when Jesus asks him three times, he is restoring him three times for his three denials. And Peter goes on to become the leader of the church. Even, uh, you know, so he's, he's the leader of the church for the first third of the book of Acts or so. He is even key 
in bringing the Gentiles into the church. There is a, in Acts 10 and 11, there's a whole story there. You can look it up. But here's the thing. It doesn't stick. Even on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of Pentecost, on the other side of all these things, Peter is still not perfect because Paul tells us a story in Galatians 2 about how Peter then like fell back into treating Gentile Christians as if they were second class. Now, apparently he repents of it. <laughs> but there's another fact that's interesting that I've mentioned a few times along the way, but maybe you've forgotten. That the whole book of Mark, the whole gospel of Mark, is based on Peter's account. Uh, the early church, a number of the early church writers told us this. And, uh, and we know uh, from the end of 1 Peter that Mark is with Peter. And then in 2 Peter 1, he tells us that he is making an effort to leave behind a witness of what he had seen. So, the Gospel of Mark, think about all the times Peter's looked like a buffoon in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, up to and including denying Jesus three times. This is a man who's willing to tell stories in which he looks foolish, even looks like a traitor to Jesus. Why? Why? Because he is not defined by his untrustworthiness, by his faithlessness. He is defined by the trustworthiness of Jesus, by Jesus' faithfulness to him, because Jesus came to save sinners. So what do you do with your failures? What do you do with your regret? Do you ignore it? You probably do sometimes. Do you stew in it? You probably do sometimes. But what we're told over and over again, what we see Peter display so brilliantly across the pages of the New Testament is that we can turn to Jesus to repent, to be defined not by our faithlessness, but to be defined by Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us true repentance, that you would teach us a godly grief that doesn't lead to death, but leads to a salvation without regret, that leads to a confidence not that we can turn things around, but that you have been faithful to us, that your son has been faithful even to death on our behalf. Teach us to judge ourselves not by our own value, of our own actions, but by the faithfulness, the trustworthiness, the goodness of your son who came to save sinners like all of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.